Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. It's easy to find Sarah Shapiro Plevin. If you're in certain circles in the Facebook world, especially the Jewish Facebook world, especially the women's Jewish Facebook world, that's where she and I most often crossed paths. And it was such a pleasure to spend time face-to-face, voice-to-voice with her as we entered conversation about life and Jewish life, especially during this pandemic. Sarah is the CEO and co-founder of the Gender Equity and Hiring Project and the founder of Rimonim Consulting. We talked about the wonders of urban Jewish life, both before and now during this pandemic, and what it's going to mean to return after this time of digital unification and reunification, and some of the loss as the virus has, as she put it, infected some of our relationships. Stay tuned as Sarah and I explore the question, are you coming back? Sarah, thank you for joining me. It is so nice to be together. Um, We spend a lot of time going back and forth on our uh, shared Facebook groups together, so sharing social media time together. But it's nice to share online one-on-one time, talking about the world and what it's been like and what it's going to be like. So maybe you start by taking me back. Um, It feels like forever ago now that it's 2021 officially. Take me back to 2019, maybe to like a Shabbos morning or a holiday a meal, Jewish life. Like, what was it like for you and for your family then? Give me a snapshot of, um, I don't know, what life was like before things started to kind of crack apart a little bit with this pandemic. Uh, 2019. My God, it feels so long ago. Uh, (laughs) I'm really, really fortunate. I feel very lucky to live... um, in this beautiful little Jewish blue bubble of the Upper West Side, in a fantastic community of um, people who just care really deeply about participating in community. Um, I live one block away from my shul, and I have a 16-year-old son. And my son, actually, interestingly enough, also cares really deeply about being a part of a community. And Shabbat for us consists really of spending time with his friends. Um, We have an incredible community of people around us who are folks with kids in and around his age, many of whom are his school classmates um, and people who are our friends from shul. And Shabbat for us is really, it's not necessarily about the experience of going to shul, although we go to shul and we're a part of a fantastic minion, Um, but it's about gathering together for Shabbat dinner. And it's about gathering together for Shabbat lunch. And actually the the piece that I'll share with you is really um, the most important part of Shabbat, which has not disappeared for me in the course of the pandemic. Um, I live a block from Riverside Park. And 
every Shabbat when it is not raining, and actually that's not true, even when it is raining, um, my son goes out to play baseball in Riverside Park with a group of friends who range in age from about three or four years younger than he is to a few years older. And the parents come out with the kids and watch. And sometimes we picnic and sometimes we bring wine. Um, And there's a group of families who really have sort of um, emerged as a community around this experience that our kids have put together. They play baseball, they play Frisbee, they play football. And they call this like the Shabbat baseball group. I don't know, they don't have like a formal name or t-shirts or anything, but they really have come together in this community of boys and a few girls who um, know that every Shabbat afternoon at about two o'clock, they migrate to this one space and they come together, not just because, you know, Shabbat is the time to be, but because they have a community around this experience. Um, when they go to camp during the summer, the parents still show up in that same space. And it's really extraordinary. And something about it feels almost holy. Um, they, they just, they, they all sort of um, like cells sort of move together into this, um, in, like into the, this nucleus of space in the park. And I feel so fortunate because um, even in a pandemic, these kids are able to get together and play distanced. Um, and the parents have really formed it a safe and loving community of people who support one another. Um, and we don't do it on Sundays. It's a Shabbat only thing. Um, the kids play into the dusk hours And we know that what they are doing is really just the embodiment of Shabbat. They are without technology. They're relaxing. They're getting exercise. They're being together. And we are really just um, experiencing the joy of watching them and knowing them, knowing that they are doing um, the things that children are supposed to do. Uh, organizing themselves, playing together, and celebrating, just celebrating childhood, which is really just the most magnificent thing. Right before we started recording, you were talking to me about building your family as this small family, as somebody who came from a small family, who built a family with someone else who came from a smallish family, and also building your family in an urban way, uh, and an urban environment. I'm thinking about this description that you're you're painting for us uh, and trying to decide if what you're describing is kind of a quintessential urban Shabbat, urban Jewish experience or not. Tony, do you think like what you're describing is a 21st century urban Jewish experience that close-knit Jewish center and then the park experience, but it's a nearby walkable Jewish close-knit experience, you know, putting on not necessarily the sociologist hat, but just as a a family member within a unit like this, does it feel urban to you? Is this what you intended by building your family in this way? It's a great question. Um, I moved to New York in 1994. Um, Having lived my entire life 
in the suburbs. Um, and I'll be honest, I did not like the suburbs. There was something about the suburbs that I found really daunting, the loneliness of the suburbs. Um, the the separation, the distance between houses, the diff the distance between people. Um, and I really loved the proximity, um, the intimacy of living in an urban environment. And at some point, um, I got married and my friends got married and people started to move. People started to leave town. They started to buy these big houses um, with garages and basements and fill their homes up with all of these things. And people would say to me, how could you possibly imagine raising a family in the city? And um, for me, that that was like a <laughs> kind of like this, this entertaining sort of um, like a parlor joke, right? Like, how, how, well, I'm, I mean, I'm going to do it. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, what it immediately became was a challenge. Well, how could you? I don't know, but I'm going to try. We'll see. Um, the, the beauty of the experience of raising a family in the city is that I'm surrounded by other people who've made the same choices I have. This isn't a default choice. And I have found that where I am actually surrounded by people who are different from me, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what that difference is because it's actually really not different. I'm choosing to highlight the difference, but it's not really different. Where I'm surrounded by people who are different from me, we've all made the choice to be here and we've made the choice to be here together. We've made the choice to live in a place where, um, we don't have backyards, we have the park. We don't have isolation, we have togetherness. We don't have giant televisions hanging on our walls. We don't have um, each of our kids in individual bedrooms. We don't have basements. We have things that we share. And um, I understand that for a lot of people, that's actually not appealing. For me, that is appealing. Um, and I realized that there are lots of things that I have traded in place of that. Um, but this was actually something that I, I really wanted. Um, and it, it doesn't hurt that my husband grew up in Manhattan um, and, and has always sort of embraced living um, in an urban family. But I recognize that this is something really a little bit weird and uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, two pieces about that that I, I will highlight. There's a tremendous amount of privilege in being able to live here. And I wanna just acknowledge that. Um, living in Manhattan costs a lot of money. Um, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. And um, it, it comes with a certain surcharge, right? And um, I feel very lucky to be able to do that. And to know that I have the space um, to be able to call my own, which is, you know, at this point in my life, a real, a tremendous gift. Um, I also recognize that when I talk about surrounding myself with people who are different than me, I I'm still um, not living the life of difference that I might be embracing in other places. When I chose to send my son to Jewish day school, I said to my mother, 
I'm really excited. My son has such a diverse class of, of students. Um, the experience that he's gonna have is so diverse. And my mother says to me, are you kidding? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's gonna be so diverse, it's so exciting. He has kids in his class whose parents come from Brazil and from England and from Australia and from Canada and from South Africa. And she was like, are they all white? Are they all Jewish? Are they all wealthy? And it was stunning to me and really actually upsetting. And I realized that when I look around and I see difference, I actually have to remember that that difference is not actually different. Most of us share the same values. Most of us share the same basic origin story. And um, when I look for difference, the difference that I'm looking for is difference that I'm trying to find and not a kind of authentic difference that might help us to learn from each other in different kinds of ways. Um, so that's kind of um, helped me to anchor myself in an urban environment where I do get to encounter people who, who really are different from me, but I have to work a little bit harder to find them and then just pass them on the street. So what is it that, um, you know, what's, what's the, what is your core? What's, what are your centering homes? Uh, is it your synagogue home that's your Jewish home? Is it your son's uh, school that becomes your Jewish center? Do you have other centers? Is it your work that becomes part of your Jewish home and core that you center around before you branch out? You know, what, are, what were your homes, particularly before the pandemic, uh, before home became your, your only <laughs> home for the most part? Um, what were your, your centers of life? Um, I feel really fortunate to um, have many homes and to have hubs of my life connected by many different sort of um, links and, and connectors. Um, I don't have just one home. And my communities are connected by multiple, um, sort of in multiple ways. I have a community around um, my synagogue, for example, uh, which is amazing and wonderful. Um, and, and by the way, an opportunity for me to engage with people who are significantly older than me and significantly younger. Um, and I, I really do appreciate the, the multi-generational nature of that, which I wouldn't necessarily be able to find through work or through my, my kids' school. Um, I have a beautiful, beautiful and extremely special relationship with um, families who I met through my kid, um, which is something I actually never imagined. I never imagined that I would make friends with people through my kid. Um, these are these are friends who um, I might not actually have found something in common with had we not met through our children, but I have grown to love like they are my sisters and brothers. And um, they're, I mean, we are as different as night and day, many of us, but we have the shared experience of raising our children together and watching our children grow. Um, that is a real home for me. Um, 
And a number of them have formed a real community, of course, by chat group and by WhatsApp um, during the pandemic. And I have a really extraordinary community of colleagues. Um, that community of colleagues, interestingly enough, exists for me both in person and virtually. And I'll make mention of this because I, I think it's really worth acknowledging. I have a large number of colleagues who I, um, I know really for the most part only virtually. And, or um, I encountered for the first time virtually and I've come to know in person. Those, many of those people are people who I care deeply about, who I have really marvelously intimate and thoughtful and intellectually compelling relationships with and who I feel really close with. And I note that because those people are my professional community in many ways. And I don't require a face-to-face -face personal physical relationship with them. I can grow with them and I can learn with them regardless of our physical proximity and regardless of whether or not that relationship was born in a physical space. So each one of those plays, each one of those communities plays a different role in my life. And um, each one was sort of born out of a different kind of relationship. And each one I think ha has different value. Um, I'm the kind of person who, um, likes to weave all of those relationships together. And I feel very strongly that um, sort of once you're a part of my life, um, you're, you're part of my life and those relationships shouldn't ever have to disappear. So I wanna put a pin in that thought that you brought up particularly about the idea of fostering and nourishing relationships that are born in the virtual sphere. I think that it's a question that educators in particular are grappling with right now, because I know that the educators who had to begin a new semester this fall with students whom, with whom they hadn't been able to develop first in-person relationships, um, colleague, you know, those are the cleanest example I can give to somebody who had to start over for sure with a new semester of relationships with colleagues. That was really hard. Um, for people to start fresh. And I also know that people are talking about this in the realm of, uh, of the Jewish world in terms of fostering relationships with potential congregants and community members who might be joining virtually communities. Is it possible? They're asking, we're asking. Is it possible to foster a relationship really with somebody who you didn't first meet or maybe will never meet in person. So I want to put a pin in that idea because that's a real live idea in the COVID world for so many people. And I want to talk to you about how you do that so well. But first, I want to talk about how we got to where we got and how you got to where you got in COVID. And I want to ask you, when I reached out to you to ask you to talk you, I think, had kind of a spiritual or emotional reaction to being asked to be in conversation about about this question about are you coming back? Um, and I wanted to ask uh, if you were willing to share with me where were you at that moment or where are you um, that this question about coming back 
is so raw for you? Um, does it have to do with the fact um, that you've had to break from that community that's so precious to you, even though the baseball is still alive? Um, are you are you in a raw place? Is this um, is this is this COVID land um, in in a tough place for you? Um, I'm so glad that you returned to that question and thank you. Um, I'll answer it in two parts because I think the rawness feels both wonderful and revelatory and painful at the same time. Um, I'll answer the pain and then and then speak to the um, the pieces of it that are really, I think, transformative and wonderful. Um, I think for all of us who feel just connected to other human beings, there's a real sense of dislocation in this moment. Um, I'm aware that because I am separate from people who I see every day or who I used to see every day, I've lost friendships in this moment. I have, um, not because we've had breaks or arguments or, or um, conflict, but because those relationships have dissolved because we don't have the regular experience of seeing one another. And that is a really painful loss for me. Um, I'm gonna choose not to start to cry, but it's something that has really, like I feel it very, very keenly. Um, every once in a while, I'm reminded of some of those losses when some of those friendships reemerge. And I'm aware that um, those are friendships that are in some way damaged by this moment, right? That the virus itself has sort of um, infected those relationships. And I, I'm not ever actually gonna be able to get those relationships back. For some, it's because like, I can't walk to see them. I can't travel to see them. I can't visit them. Those relationships are, are broken in some way. And I, I miss them and, and they miss me. This isn't a one-sided thing, it is a two-sided thing. Um, we're not the same by phone, by video, sending each other texts. It's not the same. And there's something sort of irretrievable about that. On the flip side, um, and I'm thinking about two groups of people in particular, um, two groups of, of women in particular. Um, my relationships with two, two groups of women in particular have become like, um, like fertilizer for me, have nourished me and cared for me in this moment in ways that I never would have expected. Um, people who are literally present for me 24 hours a day, who are willing to hear the, the ridiculous musings of my mind, who are willing to, to answer questions that I have about the most ridiculous things and who have cared for me from March 8th until this day in ways that I can't possibly begin to repay. Um, that has taken a variety of different shapes. Some of them are folks who, who meet me in the park on Shabbat afternoon. Um, some are, are um, you know, people who have 
shown up to be present with me in all kinds of different ways. Um, and, you know, I, I could give tons of examples, but I'm thinking about like the people who shared uh, uh, grocery orders, you know, when, when we were doing bulk grocery orders in the springtime. And the people who would take socially distanced walks with me. Um, these are two groups of folks who have been a real lifeline. And my relationships with them are actually richer now than they ever were before. Filled with a kind of trust and a kind of love and appreciation that I never would have expected. Um, and that, um, that's a gift of this moment that I, I really appreciate. And um, I'll, I'll just end by saying that um, I imagine that when all of this is over, not that there's an end point and we snap our fingers and it's all over, but um, that in those two groups, right? We're all gonna like run to each other, like in the movies, right? We'll we'll rip off our masks, we'll all have been vaccinated and we'll just run to each other and hug each other like in the movies. And I feel so immensely grateful to have had the safety net of those relationships in this time. Um, and when I think about the difficulty of this time, I will think about my gratitude for those people. Those relationships sound so precious, each and every one of them individually, particularly, uh, I resonate, it, it resonates so strongly with me, this, this idea of the relationships that have been, as you so powerfully pointed out, infected by the virus, uh, the ones, the people with whom I really only have Shabbat relationships, uh, people whose homes I spend hours and hours and hours in, and I don't really have relationships with them beyond that. And, and uh, COVID has, has had an erasure effect on them. That's been really hard. And you describe these individual powerful relationships of people who have made incredible gestures and are open and are lifelines for you. Is that the same thing as community thriving during COVID? Like, is community alive for you right now? Is it possible for it to be alive um, in this time? So I would actually define these as communities, right? These are two micro communities for me. Um, one is a community of shul friends and one is a community of school friends um, from my son's school. And they're both community. Um, it happens that um, they're, they're both people who are raising children of a similar age to my son. Um, and there's a little bit of overlap between them, but they are community in a way that, um, however one would define that. And it's very clear to me that each person in each one of those two spaces feels deeply invested in caring for everyone else, 
um, whether it's through expressions of, of physical love, um, right? Like baked goods dropped off at somebody's house or sending a card or a phone call after a doctor's appointment um, or, you know, calling to find out if a kid's COVID test was okay. Um, these are expressions of how we are showing up in community now and how we are recreating community or building new communities based on sort of feeling in the dark um, and having to just come up with whatever, like our new rules for doing this might be. Right. Right. I hear you saying that community does not necessarily require some of the things that we used to basically say it required at a, at its core. So community doesn't necessarily require that you know a person in person and community doesn't necessarily require that you're gathering in groups. Community can be a network can be threads of people that are tied together. It's what makes, say, an online community of people who check in with one another through a large Facebook group into a digital, virtual, caring, sacred community, uh, right? It takes some redefinition. Um, I will um, briefly mention, um, I have had the absolute joy and pleasure of being a part of what's for me a lunchtime group and what would be for you a breakfast group um, of women who gather once a week as part of um, kind of an impromptu moment of panic um, that began the second week of March uh, through the Facebook group, The Year of the Jewish Woman. Um, these are women who, like we basically threw open a Zoom room and said, hey, come if you're feeling like you need some place to be. Half of the women who show up on a regular basis are not people who I have ever met in person. But we are bound together by a feeling of shared space and time and vulnerability. This is the place where people have talked about their fears, their anxieties, their job loss, their marital challenges, their fertility issues, their pandemic issues, their COVID losses, their personal health, their joys, their celebrations, all of the most amazing, extraordinary, just the gifts in their lives. These are people who, many of whom I have never met in person. And, you know, you, you ask about, um, the connections that we are able to forge with other people in virtual spaces, we are face-to-face, -face, right? We are doing it through a screen, but we are face-to-face -face and we are able to create a kind of intimacy by listening to one another. Frankly, I find it shocking, right? We have learned, human beings have learned how to be present with one another in these spaces in ways that are perplexing and delightful, but we are learning to do this. We are learning how to be in relationship through a screen and not treat this like it's TV, not treat it like it's a video game. We take it seriously. And it's, it's, a, it's a real honor, it's a real cover to be able to be in spaces where people treat 
the person on the other side of the screen as as the human being that they are. Have you felt like you've sustained a healthy relationship with your synagogue community through this time in the same way that you've been able to sustain these relationships with these support groups that have popped up in this time with the Facebook groups, which existed pre-COVID with these other networks, the baseball crew, the friends of the parents. Um, I find myself in an unusual situation in that um, I am more traditionally observant than the majority of folks who are members of my synagogue community. My synagogue community has chosen, and it was a it was a difficult journey uh, to have Zoom shul, and my family does not do Zoom shul. So um, my connection with my synagogue has been, in that formal sense, much more challenging. Um, And even though we're a block away, it's a little bit different. But one something that I will make mention of is that um, I'm noting that community as an outgrowth of my synagogue has um, been folks are self-organizing in really interesting ways. One um, beautiful expression of that in this moment of trauma has been that um, there are a number of people who have lost parents, some COVID-related, some exacerbated by COVID. And um, there is now a pop-up outdoor socially distanced minion that meets once a week for Mariv. And these are people who show up together to say amen to each other's cottage. It's like 15 people. But I know that if I don't show up to that, somebody may not be able to say Kaddish. These are all people from my shul, mostly from the, the minion that I go to. And if I don't show up, it matters. And while that doesn't tether me directly to the feeling of being in shul. It keeps me connected to these people. They are not all people who I'm super close with. Um, many of whom I, you know, some, some of whom I, I don't really know. Um, but many of the folks who are saying Kaddish are people who I do know well. And it keeps me connected to that sense of obligation to community in a way that feels really powerful. Do you think that the kind of organizing that's happening right now in that group is going to give birth to a something or be sustainable in some way? Uh, Does it have legs beyond COVID? Is it just a, is it just like a, what's the word? Sort of like a, um, a little string bridge to get you from one side of this pandemic to the other side, and then you're back to the Chavara within a synagogue community that you're used to as soon as possible? Or is there something to that sensibility that, you know, I, I hear in your voice that feeling of, if I don't show up, there might not be a minion, that excitement. I uh, is there something to that? Might it sustain beyond COVID? I hope that it does. Um, I am well aware that there are, 
and I'm, I'm speaking from my own my own place very much here. There are a limited number of egalitarian davening options for people who want to say Kaddish regularly in my community. Um, so this feels particularly valuable, especially now. Um, but the way in which this sort of provides that, that connective string to me is really around the self-organizing piece. How extraordinary that when a, when a synagogue community says, we're going to do things this way, and this is the option that we're going to offer, people have the capacity to say, okay, great. That's not exactly what we want. Or that's, that is great. We're also going to do this. Not we're going to do this instead, or we're going to undermine that. No, we're also going to do this. We support that. And we also want something different. We also want something additional. We want to add to that. And this is not in conflict with anything. This is not meeting at the same time as anything else. This is not undermining some other event or some other minion or, you know, um, uh, you know, um, in some way competing with somebody else or something. This is um, really amplifying what we have to offer community. It is not, and you know, I, I feel very strongly about this. This is not putting a burden on a building, on staff, on resources. This is self-organized. I feel very strongly in my in my professional life and in my personal life that we should we should really encourage self-organized everything and use the opportunity for shared leadership, for distributed leadership to help to empower people. Um, we have people here who can daven. Whether they daven well or they don't daven well, it doesn't matter. They daven. And they can do this for themselves. They can make meaning for themselves. This is a group of people who are davening beautifully in the traffic island at 97th Street and Riverside Drive. And every single time the folks who are saying Kaddish say Kaddish at the end of Mariv, I seriously cannot stop weeping because this matters to them. And my presence matters to them. It does not matter that we are literally in a place where people are walking their dogs. And sometimes people walk through this group of people to walk their dogs. It matters that these people cared enough to organize for themselves to come together and to do this. We don't need a building. We don't need a rabbi or a cantor or an executive director. We don't need dues. We don't need membership. We need to be able to do it for ourselves. And so the, the, the bridge to this that I appreciate is that we actually can do these things for ourselves. We've forgotten how. And if there's anything to appreciate, I think, in this moment, it's that we do have agency. We can do these things for ourselves. So I want to get a little bit, I don't know, spicy is probably too strong a word, but I want to delve into a top, <laughs> topic that's come up in every um, conversation that I've had so far, partially because of me, partially because of who I've chosen, but also it goes back to something you brought up before, which is a matter of privilege, a little bit of a matter of the urban environment and the choices that we've all um, that we all have either made or, or not made in our lives in terms of education and background. 
And that happens to be the privilege of literacy, right? You're insistent that these are all things that we can do, but they're all things that you can do because you're, you're literate, you're Jewishly literate enough to do it. So just to put a tighter frame around what you're saying, absolutely, I agree 100% with what you're saying. And not to push back on it, but rather to put like a really tight frame around it. Yes, you can do it. And there are, there's a certain subset of Jews who can absolutely do this. So my question is, um, this is to point to a conversation to, I guess, cross-reference another conversation I had weeks ago with Yehuda Kurtzer, who has been trying to have this conversation a bit publicly. What do we say to Jews during this time who didn't walk into this COVID pandemic necessarily all that literate, but are just as capable as women or men as like professionals, as awesome human beings, whoever they are out there in the world, they're capable of self-organizing and they have networks. They're awesome Jews, awesome humans. They just might not be so literate, right? They may not be able to say with the same confidence that you or I could. Well, I guess it sounds silly if I said it, but uh, they don't need a rabbi. They don't need a cantor, right? Um, But they might be, um, you know, they might want to group up and self-organize what do we you know what what do we say to people who didn't necessarily walk in with a heschel education like your son could right because you said he likes he appreciates a dominant community um or like you could what what do we say to those folks um so i um i love that you ask that and i am recalling um the experiences that I had at Camp Rama as a kid on the Yemei Miuchad, um, the special Wednesdays when we would do group activities as a, as a division, as a nida. And one of those days when I'm recalling, I don't know, at age 12 or 13, when we had to like create a Jewish community for ourselves. What are the ingredients of a Jewish community? Who's needed? What's needed? What are the skills that are needed? What are the things we need? what kind of communal institutions and blah, 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 right? This is like a typical exercise in a Jewish youth group or a Jewish camp or even congregational school. I love those, love, love those. I'll go back to the minion. What does one need in a minion? You need 10 people for a minion. In that minion, you actually only need one person who can lead. You need nine other people to show up Among those nine people, those nine people need to be able to utter the word amen. You need someone who can get those nine people to show up. You need somebody to choose a location. You need people to bring the sidurim. Might need somebody to bring chairs, if that's a thing. Um, You might need somebody to call pages, right? Um, In another date and time, Maybe you needed somebody to bring kiddush or snacks, right? Yes, we do need people who are textually literate, who have literacy in davening and in Hebrew, um, who have the capacity to lead liturgically, who are our rabbis and our cantors. But those don't need to be the entire minion. We also need people to show up, to bring their hearts and their bodies. And I think actually, we we don't um, 
we don't convey the value of that enough. Um, we don't convey the value of showing up enough. I, um, well, let me pose a challenge to you and to anybody who's listening. Um, once upon a time, and again, I will reference Camp Armagh, someone somewhere um, when I was a child gave a Dvartora about a text that referenced the obligation to say a name to someone's Kaddish. I, I don't know what that text is, but I'd really love to find it. We as Americans, as English speakers, know the word Amin. And, and we, um, the, the majority of, of um, people who've shown up in a synagogue at some point or another in our lives know when to say Amin, when to echo it when we hear it from other people. We know that there is a sacred obligation to participate in saying Amin to someone else's prayer. We don't need to know the words in order to show up and say amen to someone else's prayer. It's nice, definitely means, means something. But I know that when I show up to be present for a Shiva minion, to be present for people who are saying Kaddish, for whatever, it doesn't really matter, right? When I bring a meal to somebody who just had a baby or what, I mean, it doesn't matter. When I show up, I don't need to be knowledgeable of anything more than how to show up. And I think we really, um, we may be overestimating the, um, the need to be literate in that capacity. Um, not to underestimate the importance of literacy, right? I am all for literacy but sometimes actually just our physical presence and our, our emotional presence is what's needed. Yeah, I, I love that reframe. I think that it's really important uh, on so many fronts to completely um, raise the value of people's presence, of people's physical presence in the room. I even have a fantastic female identified congregant who is constantly reminding us that we when when we need somebody to for example, uh, go and reach something or carry something heavy across the room that we should not only go to male identified congregants in the room to go and schlep something across the room, right? Like, amen, amen, amen to that. Uh, really important for us to recognize that everybody in the room, no matter who they are, can have diversified roles in doing something. Uh, uh, just to mention, speaking of gender equity, right? It can be in, as, as you, I know, work so hard to do, it can be in salary transparency and it also can just be in who can carry a chair for an elderly person across the room. Um, and I, um, and I would also say that like my pushback to the pushback of the pushback is that, um, I think then my role as a clergy person becomes ensuring that the person who who we say to them, your only job is to bring the chairs, your only job is to do, you know, to organize the spot that we're going to show up in as a former Upper West Sider and Washington Heights resident, you know, uh, book the spot and make sure that the NYPD aren't going to show up and kick us out of it or whatever. Um, To make sure that I have taught them enough about navigating the service that they aren't going to experience busha, they're not going to experience embarrassment. Right. The most important thing that I can do as an educator, as a clergy person, is to teach them, as I frame my own classes at Beth Am, is to teach them to navigate services 
uh, and to teach them that the other people around them half the time also don't are not necessarily spiritually moved by the service and also don't necessarily know what they're doing choreographically uh, and to teach them to know it as well. So they don't feel out of place um, that they don't need to, not everybody needs to be as knowledgeable as a Shalayafzi board. Not everybody needs to be the rabbi or cantor, but to at least lift them to the place where they feel confident. Um, what, what I don't want to do is to take people who feel confident. And I particularly feel this way, since it's the two of us talking particularly for women, I don't want to take people who feel confident in their daily lives as professionals, who feel competent in those other spaces, and take them and shrink them down in their spiritual spaces. They, they tell me constantly when they come to see door classes and when they come to prayer classes, that when they walk into sanctuary spaces and prayer spaces, that they feel shrunken down when they don't know what to do. So when I ask the question, how do we teach them to be literate? I'm so glad that you push back on the reframing because you're absolutely right. We don't need every person to be that literate. But I think what I'm thinking of is something different. It's the capacity that somebody might have to not feel shrunken down, to not feel incompetent, to not feel ashamed or embarrassed, that they don't know when to say amen, that they might be half a beat late um, and to not make them feel small or lesser than in that space, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. By the way, what what you're saying reminds me of the the um, the the thing that I heard so often in the early part of my education, and then in the beginning of my career as a congregational educator. What we want to do is to train people to be the kind of literate that means that they can go into a synagogue any place in the world and feel comfortable. Right, which is like travel Judaism. Great, you can go to the Bahamas and to go to a shul and feel Jewish. You can go to, I don't know, to Russia and go to a shul and understand what's going on. You can go to, I don't know, anywhere, any place. Paris, you can go to Brazil. That is actually not what we're striving for. What we're striving for is no busha right? What we're striving for is a feeling of maybe not competence, but a feeling of um, comfort and safety and not feeling diminished. And whatever that, whatever form that takes, right, is probably different for each person, but we want people to feel whole. Yeah, we want, we want people to feel whole in those spaces. And you're right that it does not need to be the case that every person steps up to take a leadership role for that to make them part of the community in, in, uh, in a minion space. That, that's absolutely the case. So maybe these little minionim will survive COVID. Maybe they'll magnetically... Um, find a cohesion back into something larger? Maybe, maybe not. Um, what do you think, other than those little minyanim, what for you, uh, either in sort of your your personal spiritual practices or what's cropped up for you during COVID um, or what you've witnessed in community during COVID, what do you think might survive COVID? What's grown up during COVID? that might carry into the next normal, as I learned from Rabbi Steve K earlier this week, into the next era. I love that, the next normal. Um, I am 
super aware of the ways in which people are using different kinds of communication to connect um, and appreciating that. I am um, seeing that folks are encountering lots of different mediums to be in relationship with one another. I'm loving that people are writing to each other, right? Putting pen to paper and writing, sending letters, right? Writing notes, using cards. Um, the people are, are, in spite of the, you know, the, the challenges of the USPS, they're sending things in the mail, that people are reading books, right? That we are, um, I don't necessarily want to say slowing down, but we are reminding ourselves of technologies that um, more recently we might have called old fashioned. And that perhaps some of that will, will carry with us, that we are able to um, slow down a little bit and write things down instead of just emailing them. That we are able to read a book instead of reading it on our phone or reading it on our Kindle or whatever it is that we do. Um, I, I also really appreciate um, something I want to honor and honor today, especially in, in um, our conversation, giving ourselves permission to not have to do everything. Um, we're surrounded by and, and we may be ourselves super high achieving people. And great, that's that's done well for us. Let's count the Jewish Nobel Prize winners, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it is deeply toxic for so many of us to be surrounded by high achievers and creates a sort of a broader context that is deeply emotionally unhealthy and perpetual perpetuates a relationship with work that is also unhealthy. And I'm grateful to be very busy, but I also appreciate that for the first time in my life, I actually can make the choice to say, um, and to be honest with um, the truth that I can't get everything done right now. And I've had to learn how to prioritize things very differently and to say, I'm kind of a mess because we're in a global pandemic and to own that. And my God, like this country is a little bit messy, a lot messy. And I'm feeling a lot messy as a result. And I can't really focus on everything that I'd like to be able to focus on. And so maybe sometimes I just need to like zone out and, you know, read a fluffy novel or go for a walk and not do all of those things that would put me in the category of being a super high achieving person and get everything done and be perfect all the time. Um, I'm, I feel really especially connected to that because um, of the whole sort of ecosystem of, of um, and, and conversation around women and perfection. I am over it, not interested in it anymore. Um, I'm deeply imperfect and I'm just trying really hard to embrace that uh, throughout my iron and my ironing board like 20 years ago, don't have one, not interested in being perfect and 
appreciating that the pandemic may edge me a little bit closer to other people who feel the same way and to sort of a communal recognition that we don't have to be perfect anymore. When I, I'm a big, big podcast listener in addition to enjoying making them. And uh, at the start of this pandemic, I started listening to Nora McInerney's Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is a wonderful podcast put out by American Public Media. She's also a great author. Um, she's unfortunately a very young widow. Uh, and um, it's all about answering the question, how are you doing in an honest way? And what you're saying right now is naming one level deeper that we could do better, which is that we might actually ask the questions in an even better way, like that the baseline for the question might be even better, which is that we can start to do things that we've always promised we are going to do better. Like we might not start an assumption of the question that we ask of an 18 year old Jewish kid, Hey, where are you going to college next year? We might actually not ask that question now. And, and this might propel that move a little bit further. We might not ask people the question, how are you doing? We might begin to ask questions like, how are you holding up? How's your mental health or things that allow for people to respond in healthier ways. So I love the way that you're putting this because I think that it puts the onus on us to ask the questions in better ways and doesn't just put the pressure on the person responding to respond in healthy ways, but to help us build a better world through asking healthier questions and putting healthier expectations on the people around us to be better connectors of the people around us. Thank you. And I will say that I, I'm still asking, how are you, right? Which is the wrong question. Um, all of this is, is learning. Um, and I will only say that, um, well, this is definitely the wrong thing to say, but thank goodness that we have a lot of time alone together to reflect on this, because I think that it takes a long time to relearn some of these habits. So, you know, none of us want to be apart for this long, but this is giving us time to relearn some of those habits. And somehow in some of this, I am grateful for the time to relearn so many of them. I hope we emerge reforged a little bit from this. And I am so grateful for this reflective conversation for you. Thank you for your Thank honesty you. and candor. Thank you. Me too. This has really been wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Are You Coming Back? Do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one? Someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic? Reach out to us at hchorney at tba.la.com. Dot org.